0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll be looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 27. Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 27. Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 27. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Last week, we've seen how the Mosaic Law was, was preparatory for the Jewish people. Right, The Mosaic Law was getting them ready for the, the coming of Christ preparing them for that day as, as Paul was answering that question, why then the law? Right? As he was anticipating the, the objection that the Judaizers would raise as they were making law-keeping a means that was, that was necessary in order to obtain the inheritance. And Paul says that the inheritance never came through law-keeping. Right? The inheritance has always come through the promise. And so he goes on to, to point out last week how the, the law was separate from the promise and yet at the same time subservient to the promise. Right, he pointed out how the, uh, the promise came first, the law came after, but the law was never given to contradict the promise. Right, God did not give the law to now be a, a second option, right, or another avenue by which one can be justified before God, but rather God gave the law to serve the promise, right to ensure that the promise would be brought about. Paul highlights the, the temporary nature of the Mosaic Law, that it was only effective for so long, but we've also seen how very necessary the law was because of transgressions, Paul said. And so the law protected the promise so that the nation would not destroy Abraham's lineage right from whom Christ was coming from. And so they needed something to to kind of hold them accountable for their sin to keep that line right ready for Christ to come in the fullness of time and so that's what the the law did that law dissuaded sin by threatening punishment if they disobeyed. the law also though did what it motivated through the promise of reward for obedience. all of these things that were were meant to keep the nation of Israel from from co-mingling with other nations. right? The laws were meant to insulate the Israelites so that they would not run off and and intermarry and serve uh, false gods after intermarrying with, with foreign people. And so we see that the purpose of the law with all of its strictness is actually quite understandable, isn't it? Especially in light of who we said God covenanted with. Remember, the nation of Israel was not a nation of regenerate people. It was a a mixed body. He he covenanted with a nation that had some believers and yet many unbelievers. As children continued to be born into the covenant as unbelievers, and yet they had to be told then to to circumcise your hearts. And so, I think it lends even more credence for why the law was needed in this way and, and for this time without something structuring the people, many of them surely would have ran afoul. Right? They would have forsaken God. They would have turned their back and abandoned the nation. And so this law was, was so vitally necessary right? because their hearts were, were sinful hearts. Right? Their hearts, for the, especially the unregenerate in that nation, were not for God. They were for other things that the pagan nations around them were offering to them. And so we also though, need to see then that the law was given to show the Israelites their heart. Right, The law was given to show them that they were sinners, that they did not love God as they ought, that they did not love their neighbor as they ought, as they ought that they deserved right, penalty and, and punishment for it. And all of these things, though, were meant to, to prepare them for the arrival of Christ. And so the Mosaic Covenant was temporary by nature. But we should also recognize and not minimize the important role that the Mosaic Covenant and that Mosaic Law played during this time. It was not meaningless. It was not useless. It served many purposes during this time. A time in which Paul says in Acts chapter 14, verse 16, that all of the other nations God left in darkness. Abraham and Moses, those covenants that God made with them and, and the Israelites... We need to understand were covenants that excluded the nations. Right, God was dealing with a particular people during this time to the exclusion of all others. Right, the land promise was to who? Only to the Israelites. In, in Moses, in the Mosaic covenant, later on you read that when God delivers them the land, what are they told to do? To expel all the Gentiles, weren't they? Because this was a promise exclusive to the Jewish people. But when the the new covenant comes, to which the promise of the Abrahamic covenant pointed, and the veil over the nations is is removed when the fullness of time has come, right? that law that protected those people and the law that protected that seed is no longer necessary. For the seed has come. The seed has come and He has brought with Him the good news and declared it not to a nation, but for all nations who, who believe in His name. So that all those distinctions that were once necessary, that that separation that was much needed, now with the arrival of Christ, with, as Paul says, the coming of faith, those things were no longer necessary. And the reality now is this, that any benefit, any spiritual benefit that anyone wants to receive, it is not received by your carnal relation to Christ, but rather through your spiritual relation to Christ. And this is what Paul brings out in our text today. Look with me again at verses 23 and 24, please. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. This here will be our... Springboard for our first point, which we'll call life prior to Christ. Our first point, life prior to Christ. Now in verse 23, Paul says, Now before faith came, we were held captive to the law. Before faith came. So is, is Paul saying that Old Testament believers and New Testament believers had a different faith? Is Paul saying perhaps that there were maybe two different programs, one for the Israelites and and one for now Gentiles and Jews in the New Testament times? I think obviously the answer is no, right? Because what's Paul been arguing throughout this letter? That Abraham and his faith is the paradigm for New Testament believers. right? That if you want to be sons of Abraham, you need to believe just as Abraham believed. So that's not what it's saying. Right? Because it's always been one way of salvation. It's always been through faith in Christ. right? That's why Paul says earlier in chapter 3 that the Gospel was preached to Abraham. Right? The Gospel that was preached to Abraham was preached to us perhaps you know more clearly now in our times. But it's the same Gospel. So then returning to that question, what does it mean when Paul says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law? What does that mean? Well we know it doesn 't mean the grace of faith because we 've just said that 's always been there, but what he 's talking about here is is the doctrine to be believed now he 's talking about the doctrine to be believed he 's talking about that historical reality with the progress of redemptive history that jesus Cain, that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus died for sin, that Jesus reversed the curse for all of God's people that does not just consist of Jews. I remember under the Old Covenant the Gospel was known, but it was, it was known dimly. And the Gospel could be known, but it was not fully revealed, was it, under the Old Covenant and under, under those Old Testament times. So what Paul is saying is that until Christ came and revealed the gospel fully, fully unraveling that mystery that He came to break down the wall of partition that separated Jew from Gentile to make one new man that consisted of of all people who believed. That until that time came, all of the Jews were kept separate by the Mosaic Law, and that's what it means there in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Right? Before Christ came, revealed the gospel to all nations, He had separated for a time the Israelites, held them captive to the law. That's what, that's what He's saying. That's the people, in fact, He's describing there in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive. That's not you and I. He's talking about the Jews. The Jews were separated by the Mosaic Law for a time to serve a purpose, but that purpose has now been fulfilled. And we know that it's been fulfilled, that that time is no more, that that time served its purpose because, he says, it was until the coming of faith would be revealed. He's reiterating the same point that we made last week in verse 19. Remember where Paul says, the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So once Jesus comes, reveals the Gospel, fulfills the law's demands, that law which was preparatory and temporary and given to the Israelites for a time, it was no longer in force. Remember, the, the law was given and all of those ordinances and rites and ceremonies were given to Israel for the purpose of being a wall of partition. That was the purpose of it. And so what Paul is saying is now that Christ has come, and now that the gospel has been revealed, and we know that Christ came to make one new man and break down that wall, right, how can we go back to, to the dividing wall again? Right? That's what Paul's saying. Once Christ comes, how can the wall stand any longer? It can't, he's, he's torn it down. Remember, the, the ordinances, the laws were, were meant To stop the Israelites from forming alliances with other nations. When Christ comes, now He forms a people from every nation. Look with me at, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, please. We see this, this very thing being spoken of by, by Paul here in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Paul says, For He Himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two so making peace. Right? So we see the ordinances were, were meant to separate. That's actually what that word uh, captive means here in verse 23. That word captive means to guard, to detain, or to confine. And so the law was given to the Israelites to, to confine them, to themselves for a time. Right? To guard them. Paul also says to imprison them until the coming of faith would be revealed. That word imprison means to enclose. So the law was given before Christ came to, to guard, to enclose, to confine, to detain them. Right amongst themselves, right to separate them from all others. Paul calls the law also, though, in verse 24, a, a guardian or a schoolmaster. Now that word there can be translated a guide or a leader. So that the law was a guide, the law was a leader to the Jews during this time. And whether you translate it a schoolmaster or a guardian, the, the same idea is being conveyed about the Israelites during that time and that is this, that in a sense, the Israelites were children. And they were treated as such. Right? They were children and treated as such. Right? While the, the mystery remained hidden, while it was not yet fully revealed, they needed something over them. Right? Guiding them, leading them, teaching them. That was what the Mosaic Law did. I mean, even think about, brothers and sisters, how how Jesus was portrayed to the Israelites under those ordinances in the Old covenant. Jesus was portrayed to them and shown to them as if they were but children. In school with young kids, what do teachers use? They use picture books. Uh, They use, you know, objects, right, to teach kids. If you ever walk into a a kindergarten classroom, you'll find, you know, a whole bunch of things everywhere that the, the teacher will use to help children to understand and to learn because perhaps at that young age they're not ready to just learn through the communication of language. And so they need helps and they need aids. Well, that's what the law was to the Israelites, right? It was it was a help, it was an aid because they were as if children during this time, right? The law taught them how. The law at Orances taught them through, like children, sights and sounds and rites and ceremonies and types and figures, all which were meant to guide them and to be a schoolmaster, helping them to learn. Think also, though, about what teachers do for, for young children. If you have a, a teacher in a kindergarten classroom with 20 kids, what can they never do? Can never turn their back on those kids, can they? Because as soon as you do, one's running out the door and down the hallway. Right? as soon as you turn your back one's ripping a toy from from one child or throwing it at the head of another and so the the teacher always needs to be on guard right always needs to be watching over the students that's what the law did to the Israelites prior to the coming of Christ in the flesh right it, it closely like a teacher watched over them right demanded perfect performance of all of those duties that were required so that they would not destroy themselves as Children are prone to do what else did the law do that is like a, a teacher with their students? Well, let me ask you this have Have you ever been afraid of a teacher before you know have you ever had a, a teacher as a young child that you were you know so afraid of you never wanted to do anything wrong in front of because you were afraid what they were going to do to you you 're afraid of the, the punishment maybe or the penalty well that's how the law also was a schoolmaster. That's how the law also was a guardian and a teacher. It was a, it was a strict teacher that stood over the Israelites and said, if you don't obey, you will receive a penalty. You will be punished. Right? It threatened punishment for disobedience. But what was all of that for? What was all that captivity and imprisonment to the law for? Well, Paul says in verse 24, in order that we might be justified by faith. That's what it was for. Right? The law spoke to the people and said, if you desire to stand before God and be declared righteous in His sight, you must perform everything I command to you. And yet, every year when they offered those atoning sacrifices for sin, it reminded them their inability to do it. That's what the law was given for. To show them their inability to keep it. To show them their inability to be justified by it. It was given to shut them up. To show them their guiltiness. It was given to show them the greatness of, of their corruption. But it was also given to, to humble them. Right? To humble them under the law. To see that they could not keep it. To look away from self. Right? To look away from the, the things of the earth. And rather, to lift up mind and heart above into the heavenlies to which those earthly things pointed. And to consider that promise that was given 430 years prior to the giving of the law. And recognizing that it is only through that promise that they would ever be justified in the sight of God. But this is what was so disappointing, though, wasn't it? When Christ finally arrives. Uh, That... Even though the law was given to them for this purpose, when Christ arrives, what do they do but reject Him? All of that and they still reject Him. This is why He laments over Jerusalem. Right? In Luke chapter 13 verse 34, Oh Jerusalem! Jerusalem! The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. I mean, they had so many advantages, didn't they? They had the law. They had the covenants. They had the promise. They had a schoolmaster. They had prophets being sent to tell them these things. They had Christ when He arrived arrived first going to the Jew. So that they would believe, but instead they despised and rejected their own. In many ways, especially in this country, with all the access we have to everything and everyone has multiple Bibles in their home. We have many of the advantages in this life that perhaps people in other countries don't have. We have the advantage of of having Bibles in our homes. We have the advantage, many of us, of growing up in Christian households where you heard law and Gospel. Right? We have the advantage of coming to a church where you hear law and Gospel, and yet, how many still seek to be justified by the law? Right? How many are still living in that manner? You are still living like a child, not growing up. Not understanding like the Jew that the law only condemns you. Right? The law shuts you up. The law is meant to humble you. The law was also meant to prepare you so that when the Gospel was proclaimed to you, your hearts would be stirred up to faith in it. Right? That's what the law was for. Why would we ever want to sit under a ministry of condemnation and death Right when we can be participants in a ministry of, of glory by faith in Christ? Right? Why would we want to be held under by bondage to the law, imprisoned to it. Right? When we can have freedom in Christ right, through faith in Him. This is Paul's point then to the, the saints in the churches of Galatia in verse 25. Look there with me, please. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Right? This leads us to our second point then, and our final point this morning, which we'll call life after Christ. And in our first point, we looked at life prior to Christ. Our second point, life after Christ. Paul says the Mosaic Law as a guardian ended when Christ arrived. But if we wanted to pinpoint, if we said, okay, what's the exact moment that the ceremonial law, right, the Mosaic Law was abrogated, if we wanted to, to just put our finger in one place, We would say, ultimately, on the cross. That's when it was abrogated, on the cross. In the crucifixion and in the death of Christ. I think this is what we're told by by Paul in his letter to the Colossians. If you'd like to turn with me there. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with our legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. If you recall in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, we're told that in fact there, as Jesus is hanging upon the cross, and He yields up His Spirit, that the temple veil is torn in two. Right? From top to bottom, the veil is torn. Why does that happen? Well, because it, it symbolized the reality that God's presence was no longer there. I mean, you could just imagine the priest right, who was working in the temple, right, seeing the, the temple being torn. And yet it symbolized the fulfillment and the abrogation of the ceremonial law, which ended when the death of Christ. Right, as the mystery of the grace of the Gospel was was revealed there. So that Paul says, you are no longer under the law, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now here we need to see that Paul changes the audience that he's addressing. Right? He's speaking now to all people. All those, all those who he is writing to. Jew and Gentile alike. He's saying, for any of you, right? for all of you, it is only through faith in Christ that you will ever be a son of the living God. Right? That's what he's saying. Which is really a rebuke directed towards the Gentile converts. Right? Because the Gentile converts who are flirting with the Mosaic law as a means of being justified before God. And so he's trying to dissuade them from doing that, saying, look at what the law meant for the Jew who was under it for a time. The law never justified them. Right? Circumcision never justified them. It was meant to teach them and prepare them to believe in He alone who justifies. That one being Christ. And it was temporal. It confined. It served the purpose of the promise. But now the promise seed is here, so don't look back anymore. It's really a historia salutis argument. He's saying look forward to the covenant that we now have. Look forward to to, to Christ and what He has done in redemptive history now. Don't look back to to what was being done then. Look look at what's done now. And this is another important point I want us to to understand, that the character of the kingdom of Israel is much different than the kingdom of Christ. The the character of the kingdom under Israel was, was very physical, wasn't it? You were blessed by being part of a people separated by physical circumcision, and you were promised physical blessings. But all of those things typified something much greater, didn't it? What did it typify? Christ's kingdom. But Christ's kingdom is of a very different nature. Right? Christ's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom with spiritual promises made to spiritual people right, who have been spiritually born from above by faith in Christ. Right here in the New Covenant, we are sons not by by birth, but by rebirth. right, By the new birth. You are sons not by doing and keeping, but, but by believing. This is what Christ has brought about in His coming. It is by then adoption and not nature that we are made children of the living God. It is faith in Christ that emancipates the believer from the rigorous demands of the law that we were once held under so that now in Christ we are a free people. And Paul tells us right, we are to, to walk now as free people. Live as free people. No longer are we compelled under the law, but rather we serve God freely. right, Out of love for God. Right? We, we love God as a child loves their father, and so we serve God as a child serves their father. It is this doctrine of adoption that, that John himself marvels at in wonder. In 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 when he says this behold what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God it is in adoption that God takes the justified sinner and he moves them into his own household and he calls him his very own child John Murray called adoption the apex or the epitome of grace Adoption is the apex, the epitome of grace. It says, children, that we re- we receive all the rights and privileges of children, but this is an act of God towards us. Right? It's not something we do. And it's a change in status. Right? Now we are we were once not His children. Now we we are His children, legally, His children by adoption. Even humanly speaking, a married couple has to determine that they want to adopt a child before they go out and adopt. Right? You have to say, a husband and wife say, we want to adopt. And then they determine, well, what what gender? Do we want a a boy or a girl? Do we want one who is a newborn or do we want a child who is older? Do we want a child from the United States or do we want a child from a a foreign land? Even then, the parents are doing the choosing, right? The, The parents are doing those things. Right? The parents need to go to the court and, and legally adopt this child so that in the, in the eyes of the law, they are, they are theirs with all of the rights and privileges. But Paul says that, that this is what we now have in, in Christ by faith. Right? This is what we all now have if, if we believe. But from Paul's perspective, as he speaks, right, our adoption to the household of God is, is so much more amazing and excellent and awe-inspiring, isn't it? Our adoption is not kind of parents choosing some child in some distant land that has never did anything to that mother and father, right? But our adoption is, is God choosing to bring into his own household and to love rebels and sinners and, and those who are God-haters? It is they who He graciously takes to himself, makes his own, warmly embraces with unfathomable love. Brothers and sisters. I think you can agree with me in saying there is no dignity like it. There is no dignity like it. People in this world take a lot of pride in their family name. Right? They want to honor their family name. They love their family name. Well, let me tell you this. There is no greater name to have than child of God. right? No greater name to have. No higher dignity than to be a son or daughter of the living God. Right? No greater honor to be numbered amongst God's children. Thomas Watson once said, It were much for God to take a clot of dust and make it a star. It is more for Him to take a piece of clay and sin and adopt it to be His heir. Well, so that's exactly what God has done. But what was the means that He used to do it? to bring us into His family. What is that instrument of adoption by which now we receive all things in Christ? Right, this is what Paul's trying to stress. This is why then he says in verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now this verse needs to be read in context of the ancient world. Remember, uh, to baptize is a part of the Great Commission. So, you don't have churches of of members who are baptized and unbaptized. Everyone's going to be baptized. All baptized people. Physically. The Judaizer, right, or the Jewish convert, and the Gentile convert. But what was true is that although everyone in the church may have been physically baptized with water, not all of them were spiritually baptized in Christ, which water baptism signifies. Right. Water baptism is a picture of, of being engrafted into Christ, being made one with Christ. Right? When the body goes under the water, it symbolizes right, being united to Christ in his death. Right? Being buried with him in his death. When you come up out from that water, what does it symbolize though? That new, that new life, that resurrection of life that we are now to, to walk in? Right? Baptism is a symbol that says we have now been clothed with Christ. That's what that word actually put on literally means. To be clothed with. And So if you have put on Christ, you have literally dressed in Christ. You have put Him on. Right, their baptism, like our baptism would have identified you with Him. It says that I am now clothed in Him. I am clothed in His righteousness. I'm animated by His Spirit. I live in Him. He lives in me. And God treats me as such. But who does God do it for? Who, in fact, is He called to be baptized? Is it those who are Jews by birth? No. Is it those who were physically circumcised? No. Is it those who tried to keep the law? No. Baptism is only for what, Paul's saying? For those who believe, who have faith. In fact, baptism is a public profession of faith, isn't it? It's a declaration that all that baptism signifies, all that God has promised is mine in Christ. That Christ has done all this for me. Baptism demonstrates our incorporation into Christ. Paul's saying then you are sons of God through faith in Christ which baptism represented. It symbolized the inward reality. It represents that by grace you have been engrafted into Christ, receiving every benefit, not then by works or by law-keeping, but by faith. It is through faith and not works that you participate in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. This is the only way to receive the, the blessings of God. Right? Not works, faith in Christ. Because only through faith do we become engrafted. And only by faith do you become one with Christ. Only by faith does God treat you like a son and daughter of His. In John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, we are told that Jesus came to His own. His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to be children of God. And so, how does one apply the gift of adoption? Not by works, Paul saying, but by faith in Christ. Right? The saints in the churches of Galatia needed to see that, that all of the religious privileges that they desired would only come through Christ, faith in Christ. And Paul's been making the point throughout the letter that all people stand in the same predicament. Right? All are sinners, all are guilty, all stand under the curse the only way out from under the curse, the only way to receive that blessed inheritance, the only way to become a child of Abraham, and and more important, a child of God, is through faith in the Son of God, who is Son not by grace like you and I, who is Son by nature. But What comfort then we ought to derive from, from what Paul has to say to us today. Right, what comfort we ought to derive That we are not under the the yoke of the law. That we have been set free by Christ who fulfilled all of the law's demands. That we now have been brought into the household of God by faith in Christ. And now as children, we can depend on God for everything. We can trust in Him for everything we need, both temporal and spiritual. And as children, we we ought to be emboldened and to approach God, to, to pray and to ask Him for everything that you and I need. Knowing that if an earthly father, when his child asks him for a fish, will not give him a snake, right? if, if an earthly father who is evil knows how to do good, how much more will our perfect, heavenly Father pour out upon all of those who are His? For what encouragement then it ought to be to our souls this day even in the midst of perhaps darkness and, and all of those things that are taking place around us that cause us to despair. Seeing that God did these things for us, right, chose us before the foundation of the world, chose to adopt, adopt us in Christ before the foundation of the world while we were yet sinners. How can we despair as we now consider if He did that for us then, what He's going to do for us now as friends and co-heirs with Christ? let Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, um, how it feeds our souls, uh, what encouragement it brings to our hearts, uh, what uh, uplifting it does to to those perhaps who have been beaten down by the world this past week, uh, to to recognize uh, what a privilege it is, perhaps not to be uh, loved by the world, uh, not being seen as anything significant in the world, but but being very significant in your eyes, uh, being very important in your eyes, that you now call us your children, that you now promise to take care of us, that you that You love us so. And so, Lord, we pray that You would help us to realize those things, that in any circumstance we found ourselves in, we would uh, not allow ourselves to become burdened with, with situations and circumstances, but, but rather we would, we would look to You as Your children, knowing that everything that takes place is taking place for our good and for Your glory. And so, Lord, we ask that You would help us to remember that this day. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.